Hey friends, welcome back to the Guardians of the Future podcast. I'm Justin Latta. Um, gonna have a special guest this week on the podcast. It's gonna be Travis Sochik from The Score. Um, Travis is gonna join us to talk about the collective bar agreement and Major League Baseball's lockout. Understand if some fans really aren't um, wanting to talk about it, wanting to hear about it, they're not really um, happy with how things are going in baseball and they don't want to get into that. They're tired of hearing about it. Completely understand if that's not for you. Um, you know, feel free to skip this one and check us out again next week. And I'm rejoined by Willie Hood and Joe Kovitz as we get into some prospect stuff going into the new year. But if you're interested, uh, Travis is a really good guest. He is uh, a Cleveland native and he is covering, he has covered the collective bargaining agreement lockout on the score uh, when things first happened earlier in December. Um, he's written a book, uh, Big Data Baseball, when he was covering the Pirates for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, uh, kind of their statistical data um, revolution would happen a couple of years ago when they were really getting good. Um, that was a great book. One of my first, one of the first books I read um, getting into baseball's data revolution. Um, he's written for Fangraph, the uh, Athletic Cleveland, 538. So for my money, one of the best baseball enterprise writers out there. He was a great beat writer for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review and uh, has just done a lot of good baseball work. And I really encourage you to Go check him out on Twitter. Twitter, it's uh, Travis underscore Sawchick. That's S A W C H I K. To follow his work, check out Big Data Baseball if you haven't yet. If you're interested in getting into the beginnings of analytics and the analytical revolution of baseball, and yeah, Travis took the time to, to talk to us today. We really appreciated that. It was a, a great conversation. And if you're looking to be more informed about the collective bargaining agreement and the lockout between players and owners. Um, definitely a podcast you're going to want to listen to because Travis explains it all and has way better concepts of this than I, I could imagine. Um, so feel free to, you know, take a listen. We hope, hope you do and really grateful for Travis for joining us. And uh, if we don't catch you this week, we will catch you next week. Thank you. All right. Well, we promised you someone, <clears throat> excuse me, who knows a lot more about the Major League Baseball collective bargaining agreement um, situation and who's written about it and, and has a, a few more good ideas about it. Uh, we've asked Travis Sawchuk from the score to join us, and he has graciously given us some of his time, a lot of it, actually, some inside baseball. We've tried to do this for a few minutes now, and uh, we're finally now just getting the recording going. So, Travis, thanks for taking extra time out of your day now to do this. <laughs> hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Uh, Travis, if you haven't seen his work, uh, he's been all over the place. I'm going to try to get all these right. I think I've seen you at uh, the Pittsburgh, what paper was it in Pittsburgh? The Tribune Review. That's right. Uh, That's correct. Fangraphs. 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 The Athletic. The Athletic. Uh, 538. That's right. 538. And, and now the score. A lot of stickers on the suitcase. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I need yeah, to pick Travis just one is... place and stick there for a while. Yeah, let's. Uh... <laughs> yeah, someone someone should definitely do that. You've put out a lot of good work over the years. I know I started following you, and you were covering the Pirates, and also the author of Big Data Baseball, one of the first data books I think I've read as far as the analytics on baseball is concerned. So if you've never checked that out, I highly encourage you to. To buy that book, I know it's Travis. That's a few years old now, but I think it still goes back to a lot of where baseball is today. Yeah, that was published in 2015. Uh, it feels like 
20 years ago because the game has changed so much since then. But uh, yeah, I think some of the lessons hold up well. But that was pre-StackCast and uh, still you know, somewhere between where we are today and the early analytics age. But uh, yeah, I think there's still some interesting lessons to be taken from that book. Yeah, it's a good place to start. For sure. I, I definitely enjoyed that book and uh, I encourage anybody else to go check it out if they're looking for a place to start with uh, baseball's growing analytics. So let's get into the CBA a little bit. I thought your thread was interesting back on December 2nd when this kind of all started unraveling, um, especially the argument. I think I think a lot of the common fans look at this as the millionaires versus billionaires thing. And you kind of broke it down, you know, in a really good way to make it easier to understand that's not really what it is but for the common fan out there who kind of thinks that this is a millionaires versus billionaires fight why why is that not wholly accurate yeah i think what gets lost is that you know uh most players are are not millionaires and if uh we focus on the average salary and the average salary has been above four million dollars since 2016 uh that that's a big number of course but most players, you know, never reach free agency. Uh, most players uh, don't reach later into arbitration. The the median dollars earned in 2019, which is the the last year I have the complete data data for, is $558,000. So you think about, uh, you know, that's it, that tells us that most players are pre arbitration, and in 2019. 63% of all players who step on a field were pre-arb, and they accounted for 56 days of service time accrued. And, uh, you know, the, the average career is shortened. If you look at 20, 2003, the average service time was 3.8, uh, sorry, 4.8 years. And in 2019, it, it dropped to 3.7. And that had been a pretty consistent decline. As I think part of it is teams understand aging better. They understand they have aging models, and most free agents are over thirty. And you know, careers have been pinched on the front end as teams try to delay service time and uh, reduce arbitration years and save it, get an extra year of club control. So, I think there's that trend of career shortening, and just this the way the teams game the system to their advantage where they're leaning on pre the minimum salaried player more than other major sports. And I think that kind of gets lost in this discussion about billionaires versus millionaires. It's really, uh, yes, it's the owners versus the top tier players too, but there's this other group that I think doesn't really have the same voice at the table. And that is the most common uh, kind of career outcome that that player who uh, is making less than $600,000 per year. I'm glad you said that because, you know, you look at the representatives from the players' side, it's Max Scherzer, Marcus Semien, uh, Francisco Lindor, and Andrew Miller. Those guys in the last, you know, 10 years or even five years have all signed very significant contracts, and they're the ones kind of across the table right now with the new lawyer. And I think maybe that's maybe an issue for fans where they're seeing a lot of millionaires, uh, guys who are prominent in baseball, who are kind of making the decisions. And maybe that's why they feel like it's, you know, the 1% versus Major League Baseball. But do you feel like those players are bargaining in the best interest of the rest of the league? Or do you feel like there is still a bit of, you know, it is kind of the 1% versus Major League Baseball in these negotiations right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I've i heard Andrew Miller and people at the union say, you know, they're interested in the interests of all players. 
and I'm and I'm sure that you know they would love to help every group of players, but I I do think owners have leverage over players generally in these negotiations because they're a smaller group. There's only 30 owners. Uh, well, I think there's like two corporations and 28 individual ownership groups, but you know <laughs> they're a more cohesive group. They're all very wealthy people, and there's fewer of them. And players have a much more diverse constituency, come from different backgrounds, different wealth levels. So it's, you know, they're two different groups and players have shorter careers. So owners just inherently have more leverage. So then the players can probably only, you know, whatever they're going to win out of this, it's probably going to be, you know, they're not going to get everything they want. So then when you think about what chess pieces are they willing to give up, it seems like a lot of the focus is again on protecting the top free agency, the top earning potential and hoping that trickles down. And, you know, they can say they're looking out for players and all players, and I'm sure they are. You just wonder as, uh, as the negotiation, whenever they heat up again, probably after the new year, uh, when they, when both sides start looking at what's less important on their priority list, you do wonder uh, where that, that most common career outcome where that's, that's going to fall. Uh, I mean, I do like the one idea I thought was really compelling from the player side was this idea of a bonus pool for pre-arbitration players, I, I, but I don't think owners are that, that into it. And, you know, the salary floor, I thought, is really interesting from the owner side, but the players don't want to lower the, the tax levels. So that seems to be a non-starter at this point. So I don't, I don't know what is going to help, uh, you know, the, the player we kind of addressed early on. Yeah, I mean, the salary floor would be good for players in theory, but obviously they've never wanted to be tied to a a salary cap. So that's probably why it's not anywhere on their priority list. But, you know, they're probably not coming to the table with their their best offers right now, as we've seen so far. I also find it interesting, too, in a juxtaposition to their sports, is that um, you wrote free agency requirement hasn't hasn't changed in baseball since 1976. And in the meantime, I think we've probably had a ton of changes to the NHL and the NFL and the NBA in the meantime. So it just kind of boggles my mind that, you know, it's, it's been so many years and nothing's changed with the other sports. It feels like they've gone through a lot of CBAs and more has changed for them, but baseball has remained the same, which, you know, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by because that's kind of how baseball was for a long time, but it kind of feels like something has to change now because it has been so long and the other sports are way ahead. Like you said, in terms of what the minimum player is making and free agency requirements, but yeah, I just have no idea if we're going to get there anytime soon. Yeah, no, it's it is pretty wild that you know free agency hasn't changed since '76, and arbitration really hasn't changed at all since 1991. I think the only thing that's changed is that Super Two has gone from 17 percent to 22 percent of those players with more than two but less than three years of service time, and that's really the biggest change we've seen in either of those systems, uh, which is pretty pretty crazy because. Careers have shortened. Teams have all this, you know, uh, 21st century, which, you know, Cleveland really ushered this. You know, the A's got all the credit in Moneyball, but it's really, you know, uh, the John Hart's group started that. And, uh, yeah, not, it's changed, shortened careers. Teams have gotten smarter about free agency. You know, we've, we've seen small market teams. Maybe not sustained success, but you know Cleveland has had great bursts of productivity. Tampa Bay's sustained it better than most, and they've learned how to win more efficiently and cheaply. And the CBAs really haven't, uh, you know, they haven't 
evolved to to match that. And we hear about how players have the baseball's the strongest union, but I, I don't know the results. <laughs> the results seem pretty league league friendly the last few cycles. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, if I'm a player, I I want a, a much higher minimum wage. I want earlier arbitration. And I know the players want to try to reduce free agency to five years, which, you know, that'd be great too. But even at five years, most players are not going to reach that number. Their careers will end before then. So uh, instead of, I think there's too much of an obsession about average salary and absolute share of the revenue pie. Uh, I'd be more concerned about the median outcome. How are you helping those players? Because you're much better off. Uh, if you have a if you have the median type of career, uh, you'd be better off playing another sport. And I, I think the public perception looks at the guaranteed contracts and there's no, uh, there's no length. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's no ceiling on a baseball contract. You could sign for X years. X, there's no, there's no limits, but that really only helps a very few amount of players. And I don't think it trickles down. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out because there are, there's been so little change, but it feels like something has to change. Yeah, Rob Manfred put that pretty good in his letter that, you know, they said we're told free agency has broken. And then he referenced the uh, spending spree by owners right before the lockout. And that's just the 1%. Like you mentioned, that's the 1% of contracts. That's not the average career. And, and the average age of rookies is getting older because of service time manipulation. And like you said, careers are getting so much shorter. You just really, I, I personally, as a baseball fan, hope that, you know, it does trickle down. You hope that the the players are fighting for the guys that are, you know, into the zero to three years in terms of service time to make it better because that does help the game long term. And, you know, as you said, the last couple CBAs for sure, uh, it seems like the players negotiated for, you know, a lot of creature comforts and some other things that benefited them travel wise and day off, but not necessarily further the progress and the health of the game, which is kind of why we're here. And and one of the things we like to focus on in this podcast, obviously it's called Guardians of the Future. So we, we look at prospects a lot. Um, I, I don't expect there to be any talks about this. No one's going to mention it, but obviously there's no, no mention in these CBA talks so far that they're going to help minor leaguers. I suppose if they help younger players get paid earlier, that's good, but probably no, no thought to helping I mean, those players aren't part of the union, but probably no no progress in terms of helping the minor leaguers out. Would you say? Yeah, unfortunately, they're uh, you know, not part of. The, they're not represented by anyone at the table, and I, the major league players have so many of their own issues to address. Can they? How much energy can they? I mean, I I think we would all everyone who covers the game and has a a role in. Uh, writing about it or podcasting about it or covered in some media. We'd all like to see minor leaguers get a better deal. Uh, but yeah, I just, I just don't think they have a, a seat at the table. And I think the owners are doing a few things. Like we've seen uh, some housing situations improve and, and that sort of thing, but nothing, nothing so dramatic. And uh, that's why I, you know, I think a lot of people, even, even hearing the, you know, I got some pushback talking about the median salary and, People are still saying on, on Twitter and elsewhere, like, well, that's still a lot of money. And it is. Uh, but if the average career is less than three years and you're losing, you're in the highest federal tax bracket and you still have cost of living and all that, you're maybe taking home uh, 25, 30% of that. And 
to get there, you spent multiple years in the minor leagues, which was probably a negative cash flow experience. And you're also probably a decade plus removed from any, you know, education, some, some, uh, you know, training other than baseball. So you're going to need, most of these guys need second careers and they've not saved enough money to, to, you know, retire or anything like that. Uh, And that is sort of tied to this, the minor league issue for those that, those that make it and don't have long careers. So you would like to see minor leaguers get a better deal cut, but I just, doesn't seem like it's going to happen in this cycle because there's so many other issues to to get through. Yeah, I think in the past it felt like maybe the major leaguers did not want to fight for the rights of the minor leaguers because they're not Hello. part of the union. And I'm I am told that's kind Sorry. of you know that's okay. Um, you know, it's kind of how unions work. If you're not in it, they're not going to fight for you, and and they're not they don't have a seat at the table. But you know, it's not like there's another sport, or another league besides the you know, the independent leagues, they can really go play in. So they don't really have, I guess that goes to a more of an antitrust issue than it does a CBA issue, but that is a whole nother conversation to have. And and you just brought up your point with Rob Scahill too, who, you know, didn't play a very long time and didn't have a whole lot saved. Um, you know, someone like Juan Soto would be, would get a ton of money in the free agent market right now as, as a arbitration eligible player, but you're right. Someone like Rob Scahill and, I think uh, a couple of podcasts ago, I went to the example of Chris Carter, who led the Brewers in home runs one year. And I think the next year he was non-tendered. He was scheduled to go to arbitration and, and the Brewers decided to non-tender him. And then he caught on with a couple of their teams, but ended up playing in Korea. But you see a lot of these teams just aren't even bothering to go to arbitration anymore because they know they're not going to pay these guys, you know, whatever they're going to get in arbitration because they can potentially get um, the same production for a lot cheaper from somebody in the minor leagues or, or make a trade for somebody. And that's, again, goes back to, to kind of where we are as, as players who have not reached the arbitration age. And I feel like that's, that is something that has to be bargained is arbitration or some sort of bonus. Like you said, has to come sooner because otherwise teams are going to continue to non-tender these players before they have to pay them, you know, anything over a million dollars, it seems like. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Eddie Rosario, Eddie Rosario, was you know another it's not just the pre-arb guys it's also the spread between the minimum pre-arb salaries and arbitration has grown so wide that teams are more apt not to pay the arbitration even a, a productive player like rosario was was cut by the twins and ended up in cleveland uh yeah so that's another problem and i i just think you know, if we want to look at it from the fan perspective too, which over gets overlooked, uh, I th- I think baseball, the players and the owners should look at what would make this a more consumer friendly sport. And the salary floor to me would be great. I mean, you would have uh, to have more teams participate in the off season and trying to supplement their roster and that sort of thing would be uh, really good for interest as a whole. And uh, I, I think. And I don't know. When I go through scenarios, that's something I think the players should be more open to. They should be willing to sacrifice some ceiling to get that the bottom quartile teams up and more competitive. Uh, and, and maybe that can help out the the arbitration, kind of that middle tier class of player who is more apt to not be tendered a contract when they get into arb one, arb two, uh, and some of the the non star free agents. So, yeah, there's a lot to work through here, but I, I do, I do wonder if teams could step away and 
players could step away and think, what would just make the game more interesting as a whole? And because that could drive revenue growth, that would drive interest levels. Possibly, if they they did some con- consideration of just being more fan consumer friendly. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of teams fans would have liked to have been part of the frenzy that happened before the lockout. I mean, obviously the lockout sped up all those big signings and it was the 1%, but if you kind of had a better free agency model, you know, more teams could build excitement in their fan base by adding players, making transactions. That's just one way to go about it. But it kind of feels like we're a little bit away away from there. I'm really curious about the salary floor because, you know, teams have been so good at circumventing certain rules over the years. So I look at like, you know, the Oakland A's and I think, okay, they're rumored to trade, you know, everybody that's, above arbitration level or is arbitration level. So, you know, if they go out and they have to have a minimum salary floor, do they just sign a bunch of free agents to one-year contracts? Do they trade them for prospects to the deadline? You know, are there rules in place to make them spend X amount of dollars through the whole season? Or do they just have to start the year with a projected payroll of, you know, a hundred million. And if they trade those players away for prospects come, you know, trading deadline season, it kind of circumvents the the integrity of the rule. So I kind of wonder if they do that, are there going to have to be like fail safes in place where you don't have teams kind of circumventing that? <laughs> uh, the teams will certainly look for loopholes, but I mean, it seems to me just uh, you could write a, a pretty good rule where you have to spend X dollars on the season on players on your 40 man roster or whatever, 26 man roster. And you have to spend it. Now you could trade for you could trade for Eric Hosmer's contract, but you have to pay it. Uh, it's not just opening day. It's not uh, accumulating a bunch of you know partial contracts halfway through. Uh, <laughs> you gotta throughout the the fiscal year, you gotta spend X dollars on on payroll or what some sort of penalty. You lose revenue sharing, or I don't know, you lose draft picks or whatever they would do. Although I don't know how interested the owners are going to be in penalizing themselves but yeah something like that there's it creates more interest more optimism i think more enthusiasm just for especially for small market fans uh and we see it uh yeah i just i hear those concerns and they are legit but yeah just write a good rule and make it harder to work around yeah definitely whatever's fan friendly i hope they do you know, take that step back and figure out what can make it work. And obviously, you know, neither side has, you know, in theory submitted their best offer. One of the other ones was what the players nego- or were going to use. This is a chip was going to be eliminating revenue sharing, which obviously was a non-starter for uh, the league owners. But I kind of wonder if maybe they put in something like, you know, if, if you're part of revenue sharing, you have to spend the money on players. You can't just collect that money. You have to prove that you're spending you know, the re- revenue sharing on your payroll, whether it's a certain amount, all of it, and, and being able to prove it. Do you think that sounds like something that, you know, could work its way into the negotiations? Yeah. I, if I, Cause if I'm sitting on the player side, wondering where can we try to drive a wedge, a division in the owner's group, you do wonder about some of the large market ownership groups looking at, you know, Bob Nutting in Pittsburgh, you know, uh, Dolan in Cleveland. Like, what, what, what are they doing with this cash? Uh, because they're not, they're not spending on major league players. So you wonder if that is an issue where there could be uh, 
I don't think revenue sharing is going away, but it has to be more pegged to, to major league play role. It has to be tracked and accounted for or incentivized. I mean, I think incentivizing winning would be good. And whether that's through draft picks or revenue sharing or, or what have you, uh, yeah, maybe that would be a way to, to get more competition from from owners. Uh, because right now it, it feels like it's it's not always being directed in uh, in ways it should be to to make the teams more competitive and just create a better on field product. And another thing that's not really fan friendly either is the uh, the way they've used the website. Now I've seen on Twitter, and I, I don't know if Twitter is always a good uh, way to capture this, but I've seen people with legal backgrounds say that you know removing players' uh, pictures and content related to them is all something they've been advised to do legally, but I've seen people with law backgrounds saying they really don't have to do that. I'm not sure you know, what advice they're getting legally, but um, with no baseball going on, they're not creating content in the offseason. They're not creating news. It just seems so silly. I, I, I really can't understand whatever they're being advised to do or not do. Um, it, it, it makes them look worse because you go to these websites and there's no content on there about current players and you go to MLB network and they're showing, you know, Tim Lincecum's no hitter for the fifth time. <laughs> I just don't, I don't understand what they're doing. I, I don't understand how that it makes, it makes it look worse because it, it just shows how reliant the game is on its players when you do things like that. Yeah. It, uh, I, d- I don't think the players were going to challenge MLB on you took our you can't have our pictures up, but I don't think that was really on their list of uh, considerations. It, it felt like a move that backfired. Uh, you know, I don't know what baseball's thought process was there. I, I don't even really want to speculate, but it just it almost gave players a symbol to to rally around, and it makes the website and the network just look devoid of content, which isn't good. And it makes it makes the players' case seem stronger because the game is dependent on them. They are the product. Uh, so yeah, that I don't know how they arrived, how baseball arrived at that decision, but it, uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work as uh, I can't imagine that's how they, it worked as it intended. Yeah, well, they haven't, you know, had a, a labor stoppage within the era of social media. So having all those players having their uh, anonymous pictures on their profile probably was like you said, an unintended consequence of whatever legal advice they were getting that definitely backfired. Uh, funny to see, but. You know, from a fan perspective, definitely not not what you'd want, and definitely not a way for uh, Major League Baseball to put himself, you know, in any cor- any sort of news cycle this winter when things are usually dead. Like I joked the other day, like we were talking about the winter meetings, and the winter meetings, you know, haven't been what they used to be in the last ten years or so because of how slow things move. And I really wish we had that. Like I wish we would have even had that the last week when winter meetings would have been scheduled. Instead, we have the the minor league baseball rule five draft, but it's just kind of sad that, you know, you, you kind of miss the buzz of winter meetings, even though nothing ever happens or nothing has happened really. Um, but you just miss that considering baseball has taken itself out of a lot of conversations, especially because they're not even negotiating. They're going to wait until what seems like after the first of the year to get back to the table at this point. Yeah. Yeah. There's no rush. And I mean, it's better to have this period be playing out in the off season than in the season. But uh, yeah, it feels like baseball is completely off the sports landscape right now, and baseball is doing everything in its power to make sure uh, no one is using their 
pictures or writing about them on players on the website. So yeah, it's pretty wild. And uh, I mean, November was fascinating. I think all those signings created a lot of interest. It was it was almost like an NFL or NBA signing period, which were all frenzy and fans know something's going to happen. So they're really in tune to it. And, uh, you know, you wonder about some, if there some sort of transaction signing deadline, just like the trade deadlines would help generate some interest in the future or tied to a deadline. And, you know, maybe baseball will take something from this off season, the contrast between the, uh, the frenzy of activity in November and the lack of anything in December and, and learn something from that. Uh, but, but yeah, this quiet period is is certainly interesting. Yeah, the talk of modeling free agency, but also we haven't even gotten into, we're not going to have time to get into even rule changes. Like, you know, you had an article recently that uh, talked about the findings from Dr. Wills um, on two different balls. Like that's not even a conversation we're having because we have to get to the money part before we can get to the rules part. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know they can, they can impose whatever rules they want in theory, but it's just, it's just amazing that, you know, the what the commissioner in Japan had to resign over being caught having two baseballs in use during their season. And this is not even a story. I I know. Uh, yeah. The ball, I'm getting a little exhausted with, there's always a ball controversy and I don't know how much <laughs> is intended to be like is baseball and subsidiary and Rawlings really, is this nefarious activity? We're trying, they're trying to alter gameplay and, uh, or they just was it really supply issues or material issues? That's I don't know, but just to be a little more transparent about issues with the ball, if there were supply chain problems, I mean, just let people know. I don't think it needs to be a big deal. But when you find out afterwards that yeah, we're they're using two different balls in play, it, that's pretty wild. And uh, you know, I think it just makes players even more distrustful of of the league and its intent. So yeah, the whole thing is. Uh, I don't think it's good PR. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but to your point, yeah, a lot of rule changes that they'll have to get cut through and talk about too. And uh, starting in January, there's a lot of work in front of these two groups to to get to the finish line if they're not going to miss any games or miss any you know significant portion of spring training. Yeah, let's let's end on that note. I want to ask you. I'm not asking you for predict prediction, but your general sense of knowing you know, maybe how much room is between the two to, to get to the middle and finish. Do you feel like we're in any danger of missing actual regular season games at this point? Is there, is there a certain cutoff date where you think, you know, fans should start to worry when there's not going to be games or when, when baseball should start to worry, they're not going to have games. Cause that's, you know, another good way to agitate fans. <laughs> yeah. uh, I looked at this in, in 1995 coming out of the strike. They of course missed games at the start of that season. And they had a 19-day spring training, uh, so figure three weeks is probably the most, you know, as condensed as you could get. So, to not miss games, baseball and the players have to have an agreement uh, by what the the end of the sometime in the first week of March. So, I think that's kind of a dead a, something of a deadline period. Uh, maybe the first one is pitchers and catchers just reporting dates uh, that. There should be, maybe that's an incentive to act something as a deadline. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I guess if you're setting an over underline, I it, I think it would be, is there any games missed? Uh, you know, it's it's uh, that what half game? <laughs> that's the over under. <laughs> uh, 
So I don't I don't know where you would fall on that. I I don't know. I I kind of think there will be some games missed, but you know we'll see. Maybe that'll be a really a, a poor a poor prediction. I I do think both sides understand the history and that there's a lot of negative fallout from the the last work stoppage that resulted in missed games and baseball already has a lot of negative PR from the ball to or so you know pace of play and all sorts of things that just seem to be bothering people. So I don't think it wants to miss a lot of games, but I until there's that threat of misplay, I don't know that either side is going to want to blink is sort of I feel like the players feel like they have to win something significant and I feel like the owners have leverage and are really united. So it just seems like a tough labor battle when they're not even talking again until after the holidays. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, the optimist in me says if this is really about money, neither neither of them wants to lose money, so they'll get it done before opening day. But it just feels like – I mean, I, I said before I don't think they will because of that reason. But the further and further we get into this and the more it feels like they're farther apart, it maybe it is going to happen. And I, I would hate to see that as a baseball fan to see how the fallout from that, like you said, because nobody, nobody playing – you know, has really been around for the last labor strike. All they can really do is look back to see what happened, but nobody has been actively involved, but maybe that hurts them in some way. I'm not really sure, but hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully we're, you know, talking in March and talking about opening day. Cause yeah. I think after this winter, we're going to need it. Yeah. It would be a, such a bad look to be going into March and there's still no player pictures on the website and they're still showing Tim Lincecum on the moving network throwing no hitters. That wouldn't be good. So then I think the pressure would really start to ratchet up um, to get something done. And uh, I do think if the players have some resolve to miss games, that would really tighten up the owners, especially, you know, COVID really reduced their bottom line. And while the books aren't open, the, the Braves are one of the few teams that are owned by a publicly traded team. And, According to their quarterly report, their earnings from 20, uh, 2020, they, they suffered losses, uh, baseball-related. So, yeah, I do if – if the players had resolved to miss games, I do think you could start to put some pressure on owners. But let's hope it doesn't come to that because, you know, it's, it's, not, good for, it's not good for the game. Yeah, it's a bummer we hadn't even had to have a podcast about this, but Travis, I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this and educate our listeners, uh, like I said, better than I could do it. Uh, you've done um, good work so far out there on Twitter and, and at The Score. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it is a like intellectually interesting topic, but it's one that, you know, hopefully we don't talk about too often, the threat yeah. of, you know, pork stoppage in that, right? And uh, yeah, no, it's, I enjoy talking about it, even if, I wish we were talking about real baseball. So good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, yeah. I need to, I'd love to come back sometime and talk about the Guardians and actual baseball <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, we should definitely do that. Uh, Travis Sochik on Twitter, Travis underscore Sochik. Uh, you can check out Big Data Baseball, even though we did say it's a couple years old, but it's a great start. Um, digging into baseball's data revolution. Uh, the athletic, the score, fan graphs, ever you've been a lot of different places. Hopefully, uh, the score is is one of those places where you stop collecting new, more stickers. Then, yeah, I'm like I'm the Oliver Perez of uh, baseball writers. I just keep. Showing. Hey, he had a great career, man. Oliver Perez <laughs> had a great career, and and yep. the Ziff's projections the other day uh, said he could still be one of the Guardians' best pitchers. So, um, <laughs> if that's go. been your career. I think you're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Travis. I really appreciate right. it. Yeah. Thank Have you. a good one.
Wow.